morning, everybody. How are we doing? Good. Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. We are flying through this book. Uh, we're going to be on page 1089 in the Pew Bible, if that, which, is that what you're using today. And as usual, we're going to do some Q&R at the end this morning. So if you have questions, you can go to slido.com and uh, send in your questions, and we'll take a look at those at the end. Um, just another announcement. Um, the season of Lent begins this Wednesday. If you're not familiar with the church calendar, there are a couple uh, blocks throughout the year that Christians have historically said are kind of extra important, uh, and they center around the Christmas season and the Easter season. The season of Lent is six weeks before Easter, and it's a time that Christians throughout the world and throughout time have set aside as an opportunity to uh, reflect to bring their hearts uh, down, to be sober-minded, to um, think about um, patterns of sin they have in their life, to repent of that sin, to prepare themselves for what's called Holy Week, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday obviously is a big party. It's a celebration of the resurrection of King Jesus. Um, but leading up to that, the Lenten season is a chance for us to prepare our hearts for the reflecting on the work of Christ on Good Friday on the cross to, to pay the penalty for our sins. And traditionally, Lent has been practiced by fasting. And so uh, every year, we just, we just want to remind each other of that. And we don't obviously don't have any um, mandates for anyone, but I would encourage you uh, if uh, you would like to participate in this season to pick something to fast from. And um, typically that could be a, um, a food, uh, maybe it's sugar or alcohol or um, uh, some other kind of um, uh, delicious food. <laughs> or maybe it's something that has a hold on your heart, like social media or shopping or some other thing that you think, man, this isn't, this isn't a sinful thing in of itself, but it's taking up too much space in my soul. And I want to put it aside. I want to give it to the Lord for six weeks. Um, that's kind of how we celebrate this season leading up to the cross. And so starting next Sunday, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Lent, a little bit of our practice is going to change. On a typical Sunday, we open our gathering with um, reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Jesus said, this is the prayer that I want you to learn how to pray and to pray on a regular basis. And so we pray it together on Sunday morning. Starting next week, we will shift to a classic prayer of confession, uh, and we will pray it out loud together as a body for six weeks, reminding each other of the ways that we still uh, fail to live up to the standards of God. That even as we experience the grace of Jesus in our life, our flesh, our sinful nature battles against us, and day by day, week by week, we need to come to him and ask for his forgiveness and cleansing afresh, knowing that he is good and gracious and he gives us that forgiveness over and over and over again. And so that'll be, you'll see a little bit of shift in our practice for the next six weeks, starting next Sunday. Um, this week, or this, this year, I'm, I'm giving up sugar for Lent. 
I, I've never done anything like that, and I think it's going to be a challenging uh, practice for me. So I would just encourage you to uh, find something that you can lean into by way of fasting as an expression of devotion to the Lord and um, reflection on this season. Let me pray for us before we get started. Lord God, I am grateful for this place, these people, this opportunity to open your word and uh, hear the voice of your spirit. God, I'm just aware that there are so many stories in this room. There's so many ways that um, these men and women and children have engaged with you, Jesus, in joyful ways, in in excitement, in passion, in love, and in service. And there's so many ways that all of us most likely in this place have been hurt, have been fearful, have experienced our own brokenness or the brokenness of other people towards us. We're just such a mixed bag, and it's hard to untangle those feelings and those motives and those thoughts that we have and... um, God, you you tell us in your word that that really you're the only one that can see that deeply into our souls to figure out what's going on and that it's, it's you that reveals our hearts to us. And we just ask that you would do that this morning. If there's things in us that, that need to be worked on, that maybe we don't even realize are there or maybe we, we notice, but we, we push away, God, that you would bring them to the surface this morning. They would work on our hearts Uh, Not because you desire to cause us pain, but because you desire us to be fruitful and whole and free. God, I pray for all of the the illness in our community, just the people that are just recovering from from colds and flus to the more serious uh, sicknesses and injuries. God, I pray for healing. God, I pray for the relational struggles that are happening in uh, different spaces. God, you know the details of, of the ways that, that people are, are, are not reconciled to one another. And I just pray that you would go in the middle of those situations and bring restoration and hope. God, I pray that you would just bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 2 starts uh, the messages to the seven churches. We've been leading up to this section. John has been given this vision of Jesus. We looked at this vision last week, and he is this glorious, majestic, powerful being, the Son of God, the King of all of the nations. He is our high priest walking in the midst of the lampstands. Remember, we said the lampstands are temple furniture. He's trimming the wicks, refilling the oil. And he's going to give out a series of condemnations, corrections, warnings, exhortations, encouragements in his role as the leader of the church. And as we get going, I want to I read for you. This is a, a pretty long couple of paragraphs, but this is Eugene Peterson's reflection on this section of Revelation. 
He says the churches are affirmed for untiring, unflagging, and vigilant work in Ephesus, for brave suffering in Smyrna, for courageous witness in Pergamum, for growing and developing discipleship in Thyatira, and for brave steadfastness in Philadelphia. We are not measured by our contribution to society or evaluated according to our potential. The church is a community where who we are and what we do is recognized and celebrated quite apart from the fads and fashions of the world. As such, the church is a glorious place, quiet, unnoticed, courageous lives developed out of the affirmations that take place in these communities. Quite apart from the incentives that society supposes are necessary to maintain motivation and enterprise, these people exercise a steadfastness. But the church is also a distressing place. It is shaped and sustained by the living truth of Christ that is essential for a complete humanity. It is marked by symbols that affirm the security of God's love. But there are always some and often many who live as parasites on these vigorous truths and fatten on the red blood of redemption. Outsiders often see nothing but these parasite persons and suppose that they are characteristic of the church. They are not any more than barnacles are the hull of a ship. No church ever existed in a pure state. The church is made up of sinners. The fleas come with the dog. I really love how this shapes our hearts as we go into these next two chapters Because Jesus is going to have some really good things to say about these churches, and he's going to have some really challenging things to say about these churches, and we are meant to receive all of it. And this is important for us, especially as we talk about Ephesus and its challenges this morning. I think many of us in this room would say that we are frustrated with the church. Maybe you're fairly new to Revelation, and and you've had some experiences in other churches that have hurt you. Maybe, maybe you feel at home in our church, praise God for that, but you still look out at other uh, expressions of Christian faith and you get frustrated by the things people say and do that seem to bring shame on the name of Christ. We all see the church's shadow sides. And maybe we think the church is more shadow than light sometimes. But the reality is the scriptures only ever paint a picture of the Christian in communion with the church. The, the framework of, and that, that, is, that is popular in our day of, of me and, and Jesus and my Bible alone in a coffee shop or out in the woods, that's great for a season. You should cultivate those things. But if you've divorced yourself from the people of God, that's just not a category that exists in the Bible. And as much as we look at the church, both in our own personal lives or out in the world and go, man, I don't like what I see. It's imperative that we remember that the church belongs to Jesus and the church is the place that his gospel goes out to the world. And there's no plan B for that. The church is God's plan for redemption in the world. And as much as we see flaws in the church, 
We're in good company because Jesus does too. So let's talk about Ephesus. Verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Each of these messages to the churches begins with a thus says the Lord, just like an Old Testament prophecy. But instead of saying the Lord, John uses part of the description of Jesus from chapter 1. Or I could say that Jesus himself uses his own description from chapter 1. And every message uses a different part of that picture. So what does Jesus tell us about himself? He says he holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands. The seven stars are the angels, the representatives of the churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so we understand that he is here. He is with us. The church of Ephesus needs to know that Jesus has got them. They are not alone. They're not on their own. Jesus is present and powerful in their midst. For some strange reason this week, this reminded me of that scene in the original Jurassic Park, which of course is the only good one, where Lexi has just been almost eaten by a tyrannosaur and she's freaking out and Grant comes up to her and she goes, he left us, he left us. And Grant looks her in the eyes and says, but that's not what I'm going to do. This is the word of Jesus to the Ephesians. I'm here. Ephesus has about 250,000 people in it in the first century. It's the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And it's the largest in Asia, what we would know as Turkey. It's a major economic hub, and it's the center of several religious cults. It's a port city. The navy would have been going in and out. So think of all of the trappings of a big city that you can imagine. Ephesus has it. Ephesus has the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's this giant building dedicated to the Greek god Artemis that probably has something to do with a meteorite that fell down there at one point in history. There's a huge religious center dedicated to her worship there. Ephesus was first introduced to Jesus by Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and the preacher Apollos. And later, Timothy was sent by Paul to serve there. And later than that, the apostle John lived in Ephesus. And so Ephesus has this huge history of faithful Christian leaders guiding them in the way of Jesus. At this time, the Christian church is just such a tiny minority in the midst of rampant idol worship, sexual immorality, greed, and perversion of all kinds. And so what does Jesus say? He commends them. I know your works, verse 2, your labor, your endurance, that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. The Ephesians are working hard to be doctrinally sound. In addition to all of the pagan practices around them, 
they would have been targeted by Christian false teachers. Men claiming the authority of God as apostles who are attempting to lead them into lies. But Jesus says they were not going to let that happen. This is actually something the Apostle Paul says is going to happen in Acts 20. He says, be on guard for yourselves. He's speaking to the Ephesian elders. And for all the flock which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And so the Ephesians in the 60s take Paul's warning to heart. And when we find them in the 90s, about a generation later, they are a people that fight for the truth. And this is something that needs to matter to us. We, need, we are a people that care about the truth. And we live in a world where we have, we say things like my truth and your truth, and we talk about alternative facts and fake news. We live in this culture where we've just collectively decided that just nobody can really know what's true. Or maybe there's no such thing as truth. So it really doesn't matter. Just believe what you want. Jesus told us in John 8, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is so important because we live in a time where there is so much falsehood. And we can see falsehood out in the world, but just like in Ephesus, there's falsehood in the church. There are men and women throughout the world that have access to uh, the organs of media that can speak whatever they want into cyberspace. And millions of us download and listen and watch. How can we possibly know what's true? I want to share with you 10 discernment diagnostics from uh, author Kevin DeYoung. He has a list of 15 online, but I, we don't have time for that. We're just going to do 10. But here's some, here's some questions to ask about things that you hear, things that you watch, things that you listen to. The first one is, does it sound too good to be true? And, and not in the next life, but in this one. Is the person teaching you that you can be guaranteed material prosperity or health or that all of your problems are going to be solved by Jesus? That's a question mark. Does it involve trinkets or relics or holy water? Christianity entails some mystery, but there is no magic. Very often, I've, I've, I've seen people that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll send you a little scrap of cloth in the mail, and when you send your donation back, they'll pray over that scrap of cloth, or just question. Does it involve prophetic words? The Lord told me, dot, dot, dot. Now, prophecy's real, and that may be true, but it must be tested by the Word of God. Question it. Do angels or aliens play a major role in the teaching? It's a red flag. <laughs> that sounds so silly, but it's out there. 
Does the teacher seem obsessed about one person or one doctrine or one idea? I remember getting an email of just dozens of single-spaced pages about a member of our city council and how they were in league with the Illuminati. And I was just like, I I don't think I have time for this. I'm not going to read this. Does it prominently feature the word code? Bible code, Da Vinci code, Omega code? It's a question mark. Does the teaching involve secrets? This is a big one. We like to believe that we have secret knowledge. It feels good to know things that other people are ignorant of. This is something called Gnosticism. This was a second century heresy where they said, you know, we're Christians, but we have this extra special knowledge about super Jesus that nobody else knows, and you should join our secret club. It's a question. Does the teaching use big themes to negate specific verses? A teacher will say, God is love. So therefore, this verse about judgment can't be true. We need to reinterpret specific commands of Jesus based around big kind of nebulous ideas. Does it promote an unmediated approach to spirituality? Can this teaching get you to God without going through Jesus? And number 10, does this teaching neglect the need for repentance? If at some point we are not called to repent of our sins and walk in holiness, there's something missing from that gospel. And so the Ephesian church is is dealing with these things. Teachers are coming through and they've they've got a brand new message that's Christian and they want a hearing in the community. But they're liars, Jesus says. And not just in an abstract sense, their lies have to do with evil and wicked practices. Go down to verse 6. Jesus says, yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we'll talk in more depth about the Nicolaitans when we get to Pergamum, because they'll come up again in a couple weeks. But today, just know that there are people in the Ephesian church claiming the name of Christ who are lying about what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. They're coming along and they're saying, you know, it's not a a big deal to sacrifice to the gods of the city. You can participate in their sacred meals. You can visit the temple prostitutes. It's not a big deal. And you can still just follow Christ. Don't worry about it. And the Ephesians hate that. Jesus says, I hate it too. Does God hate things? Yeah, he does. When God sees his creation, especially men and women made in his image, being abused, being mistreated, being lied to, he hates that. It's text in Proverbs 6. The Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. God hates things. And these false teachers are coming into Ephesus, and they are saying, you know what? It's okay to mix our worship of Christ with other powers, with Artemis, with Zeus, with the Roman emperor. And it's also okay to abuse our bodies sexually, just like the culture around us. And these happen to be two major distinctives of Christian witness throughout time. 
ultimate allegiance to Jesus alone and sexual chastity in our singleness and faithfulness in our marriages. Paul writes to the Ephesian church about 30 years before this, and he grounds sexual expression in the cosmic love of Christ for his people. He says in Ephesians 5, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. Jumping into verse 31. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. So from the very beginning in the Christian tradition, exclusive spiritual faithfulness to Christ and exclusive sexual faithfulness to your wife were connected and were revolutionary in the Roman world. Kyle Harper calls Christianity the first sexual revolution. And he says, in our secular age, just as in the early years of Christianity, differences in sexual morality are really about the clash between different pictures of the universe and the place of the individual within it. The gospel comes to the Ephesians and it makes a radical shift in how they are to see the world. And it deeply impacts worship and life. And for the Ephesians, becoming a Christian was a difficult calling. It was a major cost, a loss of community with the world around them and a change in their practice in significant ways. And so the temptation then is to dial back some of the seriousness of that. You know what? You, you decided to follow Christ and this Paul guy showed up and he said, you, you shouldn't do this and you got to do that and all these things but that's not really important. That's not a big deal. You don't really have to do those things. And this is the same lie that we're told today, isn't it? That, that, that the cost of following Jesus isn't really that great. That it's not really a big deal. Whether it's false worship or incorrect teaching or sexual misconduct, the Ephesians work hard to stand against that sin. And Jesus says, good job. And then the Ephesians are like, please let the sermon be over. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> Verse four, but I have this against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And I wonder if this was a shock to the Ephesians. What do you mean we abandon our love? We're fighting for the truth. We're standing up for you, Jesus. We're enduring. You just said we're enduring all of these things. Of course we love you. See, I think the Ephesians aren't diminishing in what they would say is their love for God. They fight for the truth. It matters to them. They love God in the abstract. What I think this critique is about is their love for one another. Tom Schreiner says, the coldness growing among the Ephesians in their love for one another signals that their love for God is diminishing. John writes in his first letter, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. 
So what happened here? What has caused the Ephesians' love to grow cold? Here's what I think. The, the text doesn't give us a reason why, but I feel like I, I, I kind of understand how this might work. Working and enduring and fighting for truth, if you do it long enough, it will make you cynical and bitter if you let it. Maybe some of you have experienced that. When, and the reason this happens is it involves relationships. When someone shows up out of nowhere and starts spouting false teaching, like I have no problem telling them to get lost, right? Like, and it, thankfully this doesn't happen very often, but, but there will be people that come into our community and they will have some idea about like, you know, the second coming has already happened or, um, I don't know, there's a thousand different things. But I don't know them. They're coming in to try to change what we're doing. And it's very easy for me to just go like, you know what? You don't have a space here. I'm going to ask you to keep moving. But when the person that begins teaching things that are false is a friend, when they speak against the church or create division or live in unrepentant sin or flat out begin believing a false gospel that really hurts. Remember what Paul said in Acts 20, men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. So when you are a church that is committed to defending the truth, you are going to be hurt by people that you love who speak falsehoods. They're going to speak ill of you behind your back. They're going to leave the church and try to take others with them. And that is going to start to tear up your heart. I remember when, when I was first um, discerning the call on my life to become a pastor, I began looking at the lives of other leaders in the church that I knew. And I saw many, many who were cold and calloused. They were faithfully teaching the word of God and standing up for the truth, but they were relationally spent. And I think pastors in particular experience relationships like this that go sideways, whether it's false teaching or moral failings in the congregation, people that get angry for what you believe is the truth. In ministry, a lot of these people are going to be your friends, and it's going to hurt really badly. For some of us, we just leave the church, right? Deconstruction is a big thing right now in our, our culture. It's kind of a buzzword. I mean, it's been happening for all of history, but you just get to the point where you go like, I can't do it anymore and I'm going to leave. Some of us leave the church for a season and, and, and maybe you're coming back in this season and going like, I don't know, I feel like I should be here, but I don't really know how to be a part some of you in this room, maybe you're just beginning to dip your toes back into church community, but your trust in people is really low. Pastors don't tend to have an off-ramp because typically we're vocationally connected to the church, either by a sense of calling or by a paycheck or both. Some of us who are members of churches just have a deep conviction about community, and so just like that, they're going to stay faithfully plugged in but in both cases, we become like the couple who doesn't believe in divorce, but still hates each other. We're just going to stick it out. 
What happens when you get hurt? You, you learn to protect yourself, right? I, I've heard this a lot from other ministry leaders. You've, you've got to have a thick skin to be a pastor, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that. I, I play guitar a little bit. I play guitar probably like once a month, honestly. And, and my, my fingers are very soft, and so it hurts to press down on the tiny strings. Jackson and Drew play the guitar all the time, and if you, uh, you should go up to, them after, uh, up to Jackson afterwards and ask to touch his fingertips. He'd like that. Um, <laughs> but they're hard and calloused. They've been built up to protect themselves against the pain. And you, this is the advice that you get in the ministry is you're going to be heard and you got to figure out how to protect yourself from the pain. I've told this story before, but when I was younger, I, I played baseball for a season and early in the season, I was batting and I got hit with a pitch. And it wasn't, you know, I didn't get a concussion or anything. It wasn't terrible, but it hurt. And for the rest of the season, I spent my at-bats not quite up to the strike zone, flinching a little bit. My record that year was not great because I just internalized this need to protect myself from the pain. And what I began to realize when I was thinking about going into the ministry and seeing all of these people around me, I realized that What Jesus was calling me to was a life of learning how to get hurt and not callous my heart. Learning how to get punched in the gut and to see another punch coming and learn how to take it without flinching. To keep my heart open and soft towards people and to the Lord. The reality is over time, all of us, we get worn down by pain caused by people from inside the church. And some of us just quit. We can't do it anymore. Others of us just buckle down in the name of truth and keep plugging away at ministry. And Jesus calls out, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And maybe that's that's you this morning. Maybe you're barely hanging on because of the things that have happened to you. Maybe the pain that people who said they were Christians have caused you is so intense. And you would say, man, I love you, Jesus, but man, these people suck. And the pain that you have felt with an open heart has caused you to cover yourself in protection. And if you're there this morning, if you recognize that cynicism, that bitterness in your heart, Jesus' word for you is that this is not what he wants for you. This is not his goal for your life. This is not the goal for the Ephesian church. Their their stand for the truth is commendable, but their lack of love needs to be changed, needs to be transformed. So what does Jesus tell them in verse five? Remember then how far you have fallen. 
Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember. Can you think of a time when things weren't like this? A time when your life was filled with joy, of trust, where you were excited about God and his people, where you weren't so cynical, but you were just thrilled about the gospel before you had to endure all of these things? Remember that time. Remember that place. Remember that feeling. And then Jesus says, repent. Repent means to turn around, to change your mind, to make a decision to do something differently. And this is hard for us because it feels foolish. I, uh, my barber recently moved from downtown Coeur d'Alene to uh, up in North Hayden on Government Way. And he's in this little shop on the side of the road. And the first two or three times I got my hair cut, I just blew past his shop and kept driving north on Government Way because I didn't see it. And I just kept having this dialogue in my mind, like, I, I don't think I've passed it yet. I'm pretty sure I have it. And then I'm like way out by the nursery and like Athol's coming up on me. And, I'm like, and it feels so stupid to have to turn around and go back. But I'm not going to get my hair cut if I don't turn around and go back because I missed it. I need to change direction. I need to admit that I'm a fool and I can't find this building. Because it's more foolish to continue going in the wrong direction and never getting to where you're supposed to be. Make a decision to do something differently. And then Jesus says, do the things that you did at first. The Ephesians have something to do. The things that they did at the beginning of their Christian life. And this is oftentimes for many of us where, where this, this the, the, the act of the sermon becomes ineffective because hopefully I say some things that, 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 are, that make sense and the spirit of God works through his word and my words and, and you feel a conviction and you decide, yeah, something needs to change. But then it's lunchtime and then Monday comes and that really strong conviction of like, I need to do some things just fades away. James speaks to that in his letter. He says, be doers of the word, not hearers only deceiving yourselves because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. And this kind of heart work is important. Jesus says it's really important. The warning that he gives the Ephesians might be the strongest one out of all the churches. This is life or death for you. George Ladd says the loss of love was no trivial matter. It is treated as though it involved a fall from the Christian life. Jesus says, I don't want to take away your lampstand. Not because he doesn't love them, not because he doesn't care about them, because the lampstand is holding the light that is shining on the world. And if the church is going to be loveless, 
It's not gonna be a witness to the lost. Maybe, maybe you've realized there are many in our world who look at aspects of the church and do not see the love of God there. And they're not attracted to Jesus because they see cynicism and bitterness and infighting. That's not how it should be. Jesus doesn't want that. But what he tells the Ephesians is that their doctrinal purity isn't a guarantee that they're entering the kingdom. Just because they know all the answers or have the creed memorized doesn't mean we really know Jesus. So that's us this morning. If, if we apply this to our lives, what should we do? How do we do the works we have at, had done at first? And the thing I want to suggest is that we would identify and take steps that require us to trust in Jesus. Make choices that require you to cling to Christ alone for your safety and your comfort. Interestingly, when the Ephesians first became Christians, they gave everything about their lives over to Christ. In Acts 19, we read about Ephesus, and it says many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Magic practice is a way to control the world. Right? If you know the spells and the incantations, you can be in control of your life. It's what they trusted in. And in total vulnerability, they threw them into the fire and fell totally in the protection of Jesus. But slowly, bit by bit, they stopped trusting in Christ and started placing their trust, not in magical arts, but back in themselves in a way that they could protect themselves from pain. And that's when love dies. So if you're feeling that this morning, you need to come up with something that your heart is telling you is dangerous, is risky, is costly, and trust Jesus enough to do it. Maybe that means you need to make a phone call to someone that you haven't spoken to in a long time. Maybe it means you need to join a gospel community and begin to let yourself be known to other people, to trust again. Maybe you need to figure out a way to begin giving your life back to the people of God instead of just taking from them. Whatever that looks like for you, when you take that step, you need to know going into it that you will probably at some point be hurt again at some level. And that by the grace of Jesus that he has given you through his cross and his overwhelming love for you, he will be the one that keeps you safe. He will be the one that protects your heart. And that you don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to build up calluses on your own. And then Jesus offers a reward, verse 7. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus rewards his people. Every one of these messages is going to have a reward. 
It's not, sometimes we think it's kind of unholy to think that we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. Like, oh, I just do it because I love Jesus. I'm not in it for the reward. Good, but also it's not bad to know that Jesus rewards people for following him, for trusting him. And he says, the one who conquers. The the word conquer is a military word, a battle word. And he says, you're going to conquer by loving one another. The reward in all seven of the letters is participation in eternal life. And, And it's a different metaphor each time. In this one, Jesus brings our attention to the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God, where the tree of life is, a place of total security and relational union. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed. Like this is the goal for husbands and wives, but more and more so for the people of God, that there would be nothing hidden in our lives and that we would be open and honest towards one another. And this is the trajectory that Jesus' love puts us on. And so however imperfectly we can, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be a community of people that begin to reflect the culture of the Garden of Eden by the way we live our lives together. Notice that Jesus says, this is what the Spirit says to the churches. This letter is sent to all seven churches and and. and And the church of Smyrna is reading it going like, man, I'm glad I'm not in Ephesus. No, this is for all of us. We all need to hear it. We all need to ask the question, do I care more about the truth than I do about loving people? And it's not an either or, it's a both and. I think we all probably have parts of our souls where we have used truth as an excuse to close off of love. I don't, I don't talk to that person anymore. I don't do those things anymore. Maybe, maybe you've just experienced little things where you're in a group of people and you say something and somebody shuts you down and then you go like, well, I guess I'm not going to talk anymore because I'm not safe here. And those are real things. I don't want to diminish that kind of pain, but I just want to suggest that that's meant to be overcome by the grace of God. As we close, I want to share... One of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes about this. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. This is the call of Jesus to the Ephesian church, to be vulnerable, to love. And I think it's the call to all of us today. I think we need a reminder that while we might pride ourselves in the truth, if we have closed ourselves off to the love of other people, we have some work to do. So let's do some QR.
For by grace you are saved and not by works, but do the works you did at first or I will remove your lampstand. How do these verses reconcile? Are we saved by grace but intended to maintain our salvation by works? This is a really easy question that no one's ever argued about. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are saved by grace. The, the way that God brings you into his family is by pursuing you. Um, this, is, this is in line with some of these statements that we have on our, on our signage. We, we believe that God is not hidden, that he is pursuing people that we are brought into a family relationship. But that grace empowers us to become different people. And the idea that the grace of God saves us and then leaves us the way we are just isn't present in the scriptures. And it's not part of the gospel. The gospel assumes that we are being rescued and we are being transformed. We're being changed into a new kind of person. And so the evidence of the life of Christ in us is that transformation. And that transformation happens so much slower and start and stop and two steps forward and one step back. And anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time will tell you it's really, really hard sometimes. And you look back and you go, I can't believe I'm not more like Jesus than I, I want to be farther along than I am. But step by step, day by day, the Spirit of God is transforming you. And I think Jesus' call is to, by his power, by his strength, by the grace of God you've been given by him to do the things that he's commanded you to do. Because that's the, I think that's such a beautiful part of our salvation is that we are people that have been given free will. We are people that have been made in the image of God. And one of the ways that is expressed is the fact that we are free agents. We have choices to make. And God respects our choices. And he gives us agency and wants to partner with us. And so when we're given that grace, we have a decision to make. Are we going to act on it? Are we going to use the power of God inside us to make wise decisions or foolish decisions? In this context, are we going to use that grace to, as, as Jesus says, turn the other cheek when we're harmed? Or are we going to callous our hearts and protect ourselves? And so I think there's always a choice for all of us every day, every moment. Are we going to walk as Christians or are we going to choose some other path? And then with the lampstand, I, I think the lampstand is a, is, a, is a tension that is that means a couple different things. It's a, it's a collective word, right? So, so Jesus is giving this message to the church as a whole. So you could say, well, he's, he's not speaking individually to people about their salvation. I think that's fair. 
but it's also a stern warning that the calling that you've been called into is in jeopardy. I think the most, the craziest example of this is in Acts chapter 5. There's a couple named Ananias and Sapphira, and we have no reason to believe that this couple were not Christians. They made the same kind of sacrifices that were costly to join the church. They're Christian people, and they um, see that the people around them are giving large sums of money and property to the church for the benefit of the poor, and they see that some people are being praised publicly for their generosity. They want some of that praise, so they sell some property and they give the money to the church, but they keep some of it for themselves. And that's not bad. That's not a problem. It's their money. But they make it seem like they gave the whole purchase price to the church. They lie to make themselves look better. And Peter calls them out. He says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit, Ananias? And he dies. <laughs> it's one of the craziest stories in the book of Acts. And these young men that they seem to have on hand, like run in and carry him out to bury him. Another interesting point of that story. And then his wife comes in, probably looking for her husband. And Peter goes, hey, did you sell this property for such and such amount of money? And she's all like, yeah. So she's colluding with her husband. And then she dies. And the guys that were burying her husband come back and they find her and have some extra work to do. I don't think that that man and woman were not Christians. I think they breathed their last and showed up in the presence of Jesus. And he was like, well, that didn't work out very well, did it? Because sometimes I think God just removes people from the work because they refuse to participate in it rightly. And I think the warning, there's several churches that get pretty stern warnings. And the warning to the lampstand is like, look, if you don't fix this, you are not moving in the, uh, with the grain of my kingdom any longer. And you're a liability to this work. And it doesn't mean that I don't love you. And it doesn't mean that you don't belong to me. But it means that you're just not helpful anymore. And you can't do this. I think one of the best parts of this story is there's a church father named Ignatius that writes right at about 15 or 20 years later to the church of Ephesus. And he just praises them for their love for one another. And so it seems to me that they heeded the words of Jesus and began opening themselves up to love again. We're going to take communion this morning. Communion is a tangible picture of this greatest expression of love that the world has ever known. And it's a plate of broken crackers. Jesus opens himself up to love you fully aware of how painful and costly that love will be. He knew ahead of time how deeply wounded he would be on the other side of this act of love that he participates in. He goes to the cross, making it known that he could bring down 12 legions of angels to defend himself, but he doesn't. He doesn't cut.
cover and protect. He opens himself up. <laughs> his, <laughs> his arms wide on the cross to love you and to love me. And so this morning, if you're a Christian here, you're welcome to come down and to take the bread and the cup, wine or the juice per the dictates of your conscience. Take it back to your seat and reflect. on that act of love, the act of love that Jesus has walked before us and that any act of love that you're being called into is nowhere as difficult as what he went through. But more than that, the promise of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood this morning, part of it is that you just don't have to carry your own hurt. You don't have to protect yourself. You don't have to create the resources within your own soul to put up boundaries and walls in your heart to keep the pain away. He has bought you with his blood. You belong to him. He is here and he's got you in his hand and he can be the resource that you need when you're hurting. You're welcome to sit or stand as we worship. You can come up and kneel on the prayer rugs if you'd like. Sometimes changing the posture of your body helps you change the posture of your heart. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.